it's kind of easy in quotes to come up with ideas, but of course the actual turning an idea into a successful venture, I have definitely come to the conclusion that the team ends up being the most important thing. And often that's why new ventures fail, I think. I mean, I think the statistics show that there's, you know, it's more because of a lack of a product market fit, but I think underlying everything is can that team deliver and also at the different stages that the projects fail if i look at many some of the new ventures i've been involved in you know we might have got through the first hurdle got that first round of funding managed to start scale but at some point we didn't have the right team in place be it the right team to scale from being a 10 person company to a 100 person company but that's often been the one thing at the end of the day that's been the most important thing Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Episode 100 is here. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is the SIDCast. And I am uh, delighted to have you join me for this landmark episode with my guest, Adrian Johnson. And I have to say, I wasn't so sure I'd get to 100 episodes, but as I get here, I know that I'm going to keep going and break the tape and keep on going because it's just been so much fun and so interesting I started the podcast as just something I've been thinking of for a while, and I wanted to have these really in-depth, interesting, I mean, interesting conversations with people that maybe you didn't know very well. Some are more well-known than others, to be sure, but most of my guests are not household names. They're known in their communities, they're known in their businesses and in their background, but they're not you know, going to be in front-page news stories most of the time. And I wanted to bring you these types of people because they're accomplished, they're interesting, they've made choices, they've stumbled, and they're honest. I mean, each one of the guests that have been on the SIDCast, maybe without exception, has been very open to just kind of engaging and having this conversation. And I ask, you know, people about their careers and about their families and what things felt like when they did what they did, what they wish they had done differently. And, you know, each episode is different because everyone's lives are different. And I want to know about the guest life. I want to know what they did. I kind of want to know how did somebody become who they ended up becoming? I mean, aren't we always interested in that question? It's one of those things that I've been interested in my entire life, my entire career, to be sure. I mean, how did it happen? How did we end up where we are today? No matter who you are, how old you are, what you've done or haven't done in your life and in your career, you are where you are today. And how did that happen? The time flies by and, you know, choices were made. Sometimes non-choices were made. Sometimes things just kind of happened without anyone planning anything. You know, like Philippe Bourguignon said in a recent episode, you know, life is about zigzags. It's not a straight line. There's something to be said about meandering and moving around. And I just have found and continue to find these conversations really, really interesting. And it's different than maybe a lot of other podcasts because I'm not giving you a how-to. It's not really a podcast just on leadership. You know, it's not a gossipy type of thing, but I want to understand who you are and what happened, what you did and what you didn't do. But each episode just has so many lessons that come out of it, lessons that I can't always anticipate ahead of time. You know, sometimes people ask me, you must do a lot of research for each episode. 
because, you know, you know a lot about these people. But the truth is, I do the minimal amount of research I possibly can get away with for each episode. I need to know something about their background. Of course, before even asking if they want to come on the podcast, I need to get a sense that they're going to be interesting. And so that does require a little bit of background. But I don't want to know everything about my guests before I talk to them. In the same way that, you know, when you meet someone for the first time and you're having a great chat, a great conversation, you discover the process of discovery, right? I love that. I find that interesting and I'm learning. And then, you know, whatever the guest is saying, whatever she says or he says in response to, you know, whatever the question is or the topic is or what have you, I listen. I listen really, really carefully. And I want to think about it quickly and in real time. And then I say, okay, this is the next natural question. You know, what's funny is also when I listen to the completed episode when it's out, and maybe like a lot of you, I'm listening when I'm going for a walk with my dog or doing something around the house, even though I've done the episode. And when I listen, I sometimes find it a little frustrating or scary. Maybe scary is the right word because something's happening and I'm asking something and then I'm thinking in my head really quickly as I'm listening. Oh boy, I hope I ask this question next because that's exactly what I think I should be asking now. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But that tells you that, you know, these conversations are in the moment. They're present. You know, the feedback I've gotten from many listeners has been very affirming, very exciting. And I hope it continues. I hope these episodes continue to add value to you in practical ways, in esoteric ways, in breathing and living our lives, learning about other people and interesting other people. And, you know, for episode 100, I thought a little bit, who did I want to have on? And I don't know, it just kind of worked out that way, right? It's Adrian Johnson, a serial entrepreneur, an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship, a media entrepreneur, a technology entrepreneur, lives in France, lives in Paris, teaches at INSEAD, which is a top MBA school, and I didn't know Adrian until very recently, but my friend, our mutual friend, Stuart Black, who has been a professor at IMD and at INSEAD for years, and is an avid listener of the SITCAST, he said, you know, Adrian would just be great. And that was a good enough recommendation for me. And so I said, yeah, let's set it up. And he founded Germany's first phone-to-phone internet telephony service provider. It was VC-funded. He sold it successfully. He founded an architecture animation firm, a visualization company, a web-based film footage library business, a leading online film festival management system, and he's spending a lot of time in ed tech. He's a creative guy. He's an interesting guy. And, you know, when you talk to him, you discover that early in his career, he worked in eastern Germany not long after the Berlin Wall came down. You can imagine what that was like and who he met and how he thought about this. And he keeps coming up with new ideas. He spent his childhood in Sierra Leone and in Kenya and in America and then moved to Europe to study electrical engineering at Imperial College London and then earned his MBA at INSEAD and continues to do really interesting things. So here's someone that has the curiosity I'm always attracted to, has the kind of entrepreneurial mindset, whether it's about people, whether it's about businesses, whether it's about startups, which is the case for Adrian, and is someone who keeps wanting to give back and help other people as an educator, not just as an entrepreneur. And it's just a conversation, you know what, by the time the conversation was done, Adrian was inviting me to hang out with him in Paris the next time I'm there, and I hope truly to be able to go to Paris and to all of France soon enough. And so we become friends just on the basis of doing this one conversation, and that tells you a little bit about Adrian as well. So I thought, you know, this is a great example, a great person to have on for the 100th episode of the podcast, 100th episode of the SIDCast. I hope you enjoy our tour, our conversation 
and the directions in which we go. And I hope you continue to listen to the SIDCast, continue to enjoy the SIDCast, and continue to send me your suggestions and your ideas for a guest as well. Be well. Thank you for staying with me. Here's Adrian Johnson. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I am thrilled to be talking to Adrian Johnson today. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sydney. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And where are you uh, zooming in from? So I'm zooming in from a small village outside Fontainebleau in France. So I'm, uh, I'm about seven kilometers from Fontainebleau. The, the, that's the biggest town near me, which is actually quite a small town where yes, there's a big uh, chateau. And we're about 50 miles south of Paris. Right. Then Fontainebleau, of course, is where INSEAD is, as we'll talk about, is where you are very active in all sorts of ways. It's actually interesting. I had not realized you live there and not in Paris, given so much of your work is, you know, entrepreneurial work and you've got to connect with a lot of people. Of course, now in the COVID world, it doesn't much matter where we are as long as we have a good network connection. But I take it you've been living there for several years. Yes, absolutely. I've been here actually for 20 years. I was <laughs> amazed mm. to discover as I was researching myself for your podcast. It's, I've been, it's been 20 years now in France. Um, before that, I was in Germany, where were my early and probably most exciting entrepreneurial work was done. But as you can tell from my accent, I was at least British educated, even though I spent a lot of my childhood outside the UK as well. So where did you grow up? I was born in the UK to a British-Irish mother. Um, it's very important now to say Irish as well, since Britain left the EU. <laughs> We're all <laughs> proud of our Irish ancestry. So I'm a quarter Irish, a quarter English, and my father was from Sierra Leone in West Africa. So I spent uh, most of my early childhood actually in Sierra Leone. And a couple of years in the US, my father did his PhD at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. So that's why I learned to read and write. And then um, we also moved as a family to Kenya in East Africa. And then my parents sent me to boarding school in the UK. So that was sort of my childhood. Then do you remember the early years? So that were the earliest years in Sierra Leone? Yes, yes. So even though I was born in the UK, I was, when I was about three months old, my mother moved back to Sierra Leone. So yeah, those were my very early years. And do you remember much about those early years? Because that's, you know, growing up in different countries, but also country like Sierra Leone, usually people I'm talking to grown up in Europe somewhere or in obviously America, Canada, sometimes it's uh, Eastern Europe, sometimes it's South America. But I think you might be the first one from Sierra Leone. So I want to hear a little bit about it. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, I have very fond memories, Sydney, of Sierra Leone as a child. I think we were fortunate, my family and I, when we lived there, it was quite peaceful. It was before all the troubles of the 1990s. So Sierra Leone has a pretty bad rap now because of what happened in that horrible period. But we were there in a very peaceful time because of what my father did. And my mother being British, we lived in a very international community. So our friends were British, American. At one time, my father worked for the Peace Corps. uh, So we had actually a lot of American (laughs) friends around. I remember watching the 1974 World Cup final with the American ambassador who came around to our house. It was an interesting childhood because we weren't 
typical Sierra Leoneans, even though my father was a hundred percent Sierra Leonean, we had this in this very I have to admit quite privileged international environment because of what my father my mother was a teacher as well. We were in those days in a very academic environment as well. They were surrounded by teachers and professors and so on. So I feel very fortunate and have just wonderful memories from that time. That's also interesting why, I mean, I'm surmising now how it turned out that you've had this long-standing relationship with INSEAD, one of the world's top business schools, that is, as we said, in Fontainebleau. There really is a strong kind of educational DNA in you, I think. Yes. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I never thought I would go into academia. And certainly the early part of my career was more of an sort of engineering and business. I did my first degree at uh, Imperial College in London, electrical engineering, worked as an engineer and then moved to the business side through doing an MBA at INSEAD back in the day where we only had one campus in Fontainebleau. And, you know, I was kind of set on a business career and that's what I embarked on. But it's funny when I later, many years later, came back to Fontainebleau and reconnected to INSEAD. I do ask myself now if maybe those early days, that contact with academia through my parents when I was a child, something was planted in me that later I wanted to live. And my mother, I think, was a bit disappointed when I went on to do an MBA rather than a PhD. Ah, (laughs) ah, Right, right, right. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Most people don't realize this, but many people that get PhDs have a parent that Mm. also had a PhD. I'm sure that's true in every career track to some extent. I don't have the data. It's more anecdotal. But I have the feeling, you know, having been in the academic world for uh, forever, that there's a higher proportion, and especially for women. A lot of women, PhDs that I know, their father, typically, sometimes their mother, but usually their father as a sign of the times, was also an academic. It's something about the life and the life of learning and scholarship. And you know what else, of course, is the incredible freedom. There are few careers other than maybe entrepreneurship, but there's a catch to that, as uh, you know better than most, which is, yeah, you got a lot of freedom to call your own shots and do what you want, but you're working day and night, so I don't know how much freedom that is. To be successful academically, it's actually the same thing, and maybe you, you even saw that with your own father. Yeah, no, it's really funny you say that. And I think in our family, uh, we've kind of skipped a generation because funnily enough, of my three kids, two of them are starting PhD programs in October. (laughs) So they've gone for it and they're following that more academic track. So that's quite funny. But it is true that we do tend to, you know, when I look at my friends and I look at the kids of my friends, you know, parents, even though we don't feel like it at the time, we have an extremely strong influence on our kids you know I have friends who are artists and funnily enough their kids have ended up mostly following artistic careers friends who've worked in film and theater have tended to go into a career in that direction a lot of my friends who are engineers their kids have funnily enough ended up being engineers so even though as I say sometimes we wonder if we have any influence on our kids we certainly do a very big influence. Yes, that's an encouraging thing for all parents to be hearing. You know, when you're banging your head against the wall, wondering what impact am I having on this kid? It's actually a lot. And I'll just say one more thing before we kind of get back to your story, which is one of the real fun things to see over time. My daughter actually just got married not that long ago, which is really, uh, thank you, which is really exciting. And over time, even though you don't know, you know, what's sinking in and what's connecting. And of course, you know, she's very independent, as most kids hopefully are to create their own life and craft their own careers. But they say things sometimes that's exactly 
if not the same wording, the same sentiment that you have said many times before, and it's their own, they own it. And when that happens, I have to say that feels pretty good because there's some evidence that, yeah, something did get through. So why do you think you became an entrepreneur? That's a question which is fairly easy for me to answer. And I have to say it's really through the influence of another relative, not my father, but my uncle. So my mother's younger brother, um, he's quite a lot younger than my mother. And when I moved to the UK to go to boarding school, he was sort of my Mm -hmm. guardian. Well, my parents at that time were many miles away. And he's also my godfather. And when I was about 15, he started the business. Actually, he was a victim of the Margaret Thatcher tough, the economic policies she put into place Mm -hmm. when she came into power resulted in his being made redundant from his company. And that spurned him to start a company kind of serendipitously, accidentally, he managed to buy a lot of the machinery. It was an industrial company, quite cheaply from his previous employer. And he set up a successful business. And in my later teen years, I would go and work there in the summers. And you know, as I say, I'm quite close to him. And I really saw him as a, you know, as an icon. And I really respected and admired what he was doing. So he really gave me the bug for entrepreneurship when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18. And I felt then as I started to look at what I was going to study, I thought one day I want to start my own business. How long did it take? Because you did a few things along the way. You worked in a big company, but did you have any type of startup type work you did or side business, side hustles, as people call it now, even in the very early days, or you were kind of biding your time, build your credentials and your skill set? So I was impatient and hungry to start something. And I went to study then, as I said before, at Imperial College in London in the mid 80s. And, you know, in the UK at that time, I mean, Thatcherism was rampant. Starting a business was the thing to do. And so I must admit, I was really hungry and eager to start something. And my very first company I started as a student with my friend Stuart Hamilton, who I'd met in boarding school, and he went on to study also at Imperial. He, unlike me, did a PhD and also had a a very successful career as an entrepreneur later. But we started a company called Technovator. I won't go into the boring details, but it was a telecom product, which was around security in telecom. It it was a complete failure, but we learned a lot and we didn't lose a lot of money and had a great time. And then I kind of, I have to say, I kind of got lost in studies and it was just difficult to find the time to start something new. And unlike maybe the myth of a lot of entrepreneurs where people think that, you know, entrepreneurs are risk takers, they're risk seeking. I have to say I was surprisingly risk averse. So I wasn't prepared to do maybe what what Steve Jobs and Bill Gates did and drop out of engineering school and start a business. I really thought it was important to finish mm-hmm. my studies. And mm-hmm. and there was some financial pressure as well, maybe, you know, especially when I went to do my MBA. I ended up with a lot of debt to do my studies. I actually went to INSEAD thinking, after INSEAD, I'm going to start a business. This is my opportunity. I'm going to learn about business and then come out and start a business. And unfortunately, reality hit. I came out with all this debt. And I have to say, INSEAD today is a wonderful school for entrepreneurs, I would say. It has a fantastic entrepreneurship department. But back then, and I graduated in 1990, the entrepreneurship department was very small. And I have to say, I don't know what it was like in other MBA programs. But in those days, the MBA program was very oriented towards 
creating great consultants and investment bankers. It's very interesting because a lot of business schools are that way still today. And I'll say two things on the point you're raising. First, I'm not the first to say this, getting an MBA is a way of reducing your career risk because you're increasing your skill set and your marketability and your own brand. And coming out of an MBA program, a top MBA program, certainly, but many, many others as well, you are really extremely marketable. And that reduces a lot of life and career risk. And so people that are going to be entrepreneurs that really are driven by entrepreneurship, they wonder why they need the MBA. So that's the first Mm -hmm. point. The second point is, Actually, the number of entrepreneurs that are coming out of a handful of business schools is spectacular. Stanford, of course, is at the top of that list, but Harvard, MIT, maybe INSEAD as well. I'm at Tuck at Dartmouth, and while that's not nearly at the level of a Stanford in terms of kind of everyone who goes there seems to want to do a startup, there are a lot of people that begin entrepreneurial careers. So there's been a shift in the waters and how young, smart, high-aspiration people are thinking about business school. Not all by any means. There's still plenty of the you know, college dropouts and turns out some of them become the most famous of all. So everybody talks about them, the Gates, the Jobs and you know, Elon Musk and some of these others. But I think business school has actually transformed itself to become a place that is very entrepreneurially friendly and supportive and gets you into that ecosystem, which is really, really important. You know, if you think about it, I'm sure, I mean, you've been part of it at INSEAD and creating it. And you think about it, not just venture capitalists, but just people with money who want to invest in ideas. That's kind of important if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Surrounding yourself with people that are smart, surrounding yourself with, you know, professors and other faculty and other thought leaders that are coming up with new ideas and love to see people run with those ideas. So you're in a milieu, if you will, where there's a lot of energy around entrepreneurship today. But I take your point that that wasn't necessarily the case. Well, you're talking in 1990, so 30 years ago. Yeah, that's true. You know, ironically, when I came out of INSEAD, the wall had come down. Actually, while I was at INSEAD, the Berlin Wall wow. came down, created amazing opportunities in Europe in particular. And ultimately, I did benefit as an entrepreneur from those opportunities. But immediately, 1990, coming out of INSEAD, as I think one of the probably the highest costs in this, you alluded to it for anybody in any career decision, especially entrepreneurship, is your opportunity cost. And you're right, when you come out of one of those top schools with an MBA, you know, you've got opportunity, you've got companies offering you, you know, sign on bonuses and all kinds of things. And it's difficult to say, oh, well, you know what, I'm just going to bite the bullet now and set up my own company. I have to admit also, I didn't really have a lot of the things that you need to start a successful company, which is number one, a team, number two, an idea when I came out of INSEAD. So I think I, in retrospect, it's one thing I do not regret at all having waited And also getting some of that maturity, which I didn't have, and the world experience. I was fortunate to be able to get into quite an international position in my career just after INSEAD. And I wouldn't have been able to have that probably at that time as an entrepreneur. You know, you said something interesting in a very casual way, which is there were two things you really didn't have at that time. And the first thing you said was not an idea. The first thing you said was a team. And Mm -hmm. I think that's an important insight that maybe not everyone fully understands. And maybe you could elaborate a little bit about that, that when you talk about what's important, team comes first before the idea. 
Yeah, you know, I have this framework that I work my students through on sort of building new ventures. And the team has definitely now, after a few years of juggling it around, has come to the top because, you know, ideas, I think we all, you know, creative people like you, and it's kind of easy in quotes to come up with ideas. But of course, the actually turning an idea into a successful venture, I have definitely come to the conclusion that the team ends up being the most important thing. And often that's why new ventures fail, I think. I mean, I think the statistics show that there's, you know, it's more because of a lack of a product market fit. But I think underlying everything is can that team deliver and also at the different stages that the projects fail if i look at many some of the new ventures i've been involved in you know we might have got through the first hurdle got that first round of funding managed to start scale but at some point we didn't have the right team in place be it the right team to scale from being a 10 person company to a 100 person company but that's often been the one thing at the end of the day that's been the most important thing Right. So if a team is so important, the obvious question is, how do you do it? How do you find, how do you build, how do you nurture the team that you need? You share a little bit from your own entrepreneurial experience. How do you do that? How have you done that? Well, I think one of the errors I've made and a lot of people make is, okay, we're going to start a business. So for instance, when you're at business school or you tend to say, okay, I'm going to start a business with Bob and Mary, who are my friends. Mm -hmm. And they're exactly like me. They're engineers and MBAs. And so you end up with three people who have an identical skill set. And, you know, you've got three of the same person. So I think the successful ventures I've had, and, you know, maybe not the most successful in terms of valuation, but in terms of a working company where everything fitted together and we created value was my first company, which is a 3D animation studio. And I started that with someone who was not a friend of mine. It was somebody who'd been introduced to me and some friends of mine had introduced him and said, look, Martin, you should talk to Martin. He's interested. He's an architect. He's interested in film and video. And I know you are. It's a good. We started working together. We were so complimentary. That's why our business really worked. And of course, cementing that was the trust that we had and we built over the years. And of course, we ended up becoming very good friends. And so my first advice is, as you're forming a team is really to think about, you know, what does each person bring to the party. And if everybody is bringing an experience of, you know, you've got three people who've been CFOs, then maybe you're missing something in the mix in the recipe. Right. And it's easy to fall into that trap because you meet people that tend to be similar to you. It's human nature. But what you're also saying is yet another argument, maybe the hundredth argument we can probably come up with about how diversity in all its various forms actually pays off. In this case, diversity of skill sets. You were in Germany, I think, after school or not long after school in SEAD, where you did some of your earliest work. Why You went to school in France. You have this global background. Why did you end up going to Germany? That's a good question. In the UK education system, you specialize very quickly. In my day, we were still doing what they call O-levels and A-levels. So you end up, if you're taking a scientific track, it's hard to study other subjects. But I was fortunate that I was able, as well as being 
primarily sort of a maths uh, STEM person, I was able to also study French and German. And there were so few people in my school, particularly in German, that were interested in studying German that we ended up only being two people in the class. And it became one of my favorite subjects. And I kind of got this fascination for the language. And so that was when I was 16. And as later during my studies as an engineer, I also did it as, I guess, in the States, you'd say a minor subject. I was able to continue studying German. And with my work as an engineer, I was able to work on German projects. I had this fascination for Germany and the language. And I have to say, maybe being an engineer as well, there was something particularly in those days, and I think it's still true now, you know, this respect for German technology. I don't know if you remember, I don't know if this advert was in the States at the time for Audi, you know, Vorsprung durch Technik, you know. And so as an engineer, I really had this fascination for German quality, German things. And while I was at Inside, I was thinking, where would I like to work? And uh, I wanted to work outside the UK and managed to really work in one of the languages I'd been learning, French or German. And I did actually end up in a brief, for a brief period in Paris and then ended up because of the wall coming down. There were all kinds of opportunities happening in Germany. And so serendipitously, accidentally, I was kind of drawn towards these opportunities and ended up working for, surprisingly, the German government as part of the privatization program. So it's really interesting because, of course, everyone of a certain age and even younger people read about it in history books. When the wall came down, the Berlin Wall came down, it was a sea change and it was the era of Gorbachev and it was really a multi-generational change. And I think most people kind of understand it in a political sense and its significance. But the economic implications that you've alluded to, I don't think a lot of people, certainly in the U.S., unless they were involved in it themselves, really understood. And I'd like you to share a little bit about what was it like? Was it kind of like a Wild West that all of a sudden, you know, you had to create a new economy in East Germany where you worked, for example, but in every one of the Eastern Bloc countries for that matter? I mean, what was the feeling? What did you see on the ground when you got involved there? And can you give us a little bit of color and sense of what did it look like? What did it smell like? What did it feel Mm -hmm. like when you got into this? Well, Sydney, you mentioned uh, the Wild West. And at that time, we used that phrase. We'd call it, hey, we're in the Wild East. And (laughs) many, (laughs) many of us at that time, and I met so many people who had come from all over the place. I friends who'd come from the US to be part of that program, either because they had German ancestry or they were just fascinated about what was going on there. And the first thing you realized, and the first thing I realized when I got to Berlin on June 30th, I remember the date 1991, was actually the people. I was going to be working with didn't speak English, which all the Germans I'd met up to that time were from West Germany, spoke nearly perfect English, which was difficult when you wanted to practice your German. And suddenly I was dealing with people who'd been brought up in the East who spoke Russian and German. So that was the first thing. And then as I went, and I was very young, I was 25 years old, turning 26. And I was working for the toy hand and going into these companies, you were coming into contact with senior managers of companies who knew nothing about, you know, the market economy. So I was, I mean, it's fortunate I'd just done my MBA. So I was literally getting my MBA notes out, speaking to these CEOs of big 10,000 person companies and saying, okay, this is how, this is what a balance sheet looks like. This is what it oh means. My. And so it was fascinating. Of course, 
the smell of the place, the feel of the place, you were going back in time. I mean, we hadn't yet rebuilt the what the beautiful eastern parts of Germany now, going to places like Leipzig, and I did a lot of work in Dresden. We were going what felt like back 30, 40 years in time, the, the houses, the cars, and what people wore. So it was fascinating and a unique time in history. Were the people you encountered there, I guess people running previously government-controlled companies, how did they react to you and other Westerners really coming in to, you know, I don't know if it's the same analogy, but in the Reconstruction era after the Civil War in the U.S., the term carpetbagger was coined to describe Northerners that were coming down to the South to fix the South, modernize it, and in the process make a ton of money. Yeah, and there was a bit of that feeling. Not everybody was by this time rejoicing about the reunification, the initial euphoria by most East Germans of, you know, we're going to be part of the West. They realized that, hey, this transition period is going to be really painful. And there was a feeling that, you know, some companies were being sold too cheaply. And, you know, so people were making a lot of money really quickly was the perception. It was a bit hard to win that the press in Germany, both East and West, was not very supportive of the Treuhandanstalt, which was the organization. So it's really difficult to win. And you were certainly, you know, particularly when I was in Dresden, you were very careful about telling people that you worked for the Treuhand. It was almost dangerous. And actually, just before I arrived, the head of the Treuhandanstalt was assassinated. So there was this atmosphere that was rather dangerous, is probably an exaggeration, but difficult. But as always, in all of these times, you know, when it came down to actually meeting the real people, you know, once you're one on one with people, we were just all people trying to do something good. And once you got to know everyone, we, we all had the same challenges, problems and so on. But um, it was a really difficult time where there was still a lot of separation between East and West. You know, they would call the East people the Aussies and the Westerners the Wessies. And while I was there, there was not that much social mixing between the Wessies and the Aussies. I think that has definitely changed over the last 30 years. But at that time, it was still very separate. Yeah. And did you have a chance to get to know whether it could work or socially, just average people in the East and what their life was like and what was in their mind? I mean, it's just hard to fathom that they grew up a certain way. I mean, they learned Russian, not English. They were closed off to so much of what we know in the West. And I think when they opened their eyes, they realized how far behind they had fallen. That could not feel good. And you mentioned already, you know, people began to realize it's going to be a painful transition. This is not going to be a simple thing. So, yeah, I'm curious if you had a chance to just spend some time with average people and kind of get a sense of what their life was like and how they were thinking. Yeah, I think the people who are my age, you know, as I say, I was about 26 years old, there was some optimism among the under 30s. Mm -hmm. So the under 30s at home were hungry to, you know, learn and find out and they could see the opportunity for them. And, you know, speaking of entrepreneurship, many people did manage to start businesses. And I would say the more difficult part was with the over 35s, over 40s. You know, they were like, our careers are over, our lives are over, we're never going to be able to adapt and be part of this new system. And it was harder. And I have to admit, I didn't have a lot of contact with those people. You know, when I would visit the companies and so on and talk to the managers, we would have, you know, somewhat superficial contact, but enough contact to get to know them was more difficult. And I think that you could feel the resentment, the worry, and yeah, just an anxious feeling about the future. And of course, that had political 
repercussions, some of which were very negative, especially given the history of Germany. You know, at that time, we started to see a resurgence in the extreme far right, you know, who were then profiting, as always happens, on this sort of worry about the future. And so coming in as a black guy into East Germany, some of that was a bit worrying. And one of my very good friends who's Jewish from New York, you know, he came to actually ended up working for my company. And his grandfather had left Berlin in 1939. And Henry wanted to come back to experience, you know, where his grandfather was born. You know, you know, sometimes the two of us would look at each other and, you know, like, should we be here? You know, this is not, this is not looking good. So there was this overlying political aspect, which is a bit worrying. But I think I have to say, you know, when I look back 30 years now, what the Germans have done, I think they survived that period of transition very well and have overall done a fantastic job, especially when we look at some of the other Eastern European countries of how they they managed the transition. That's right. I'm curious about that, whether you've encountered that, studied that, seen it, or just have a point of view about so many of the, I mean, you could look at Russia as maybe the extreme example of still being an oil-based economy. I mean, there's more than that, but not that much more. And certainly has not grown as an economy anywhere close to Germany, but Russia is kind of the giant there. But there are plenty of other countries, the Eastern Bloc, I mean, Hungary and Romania, certainly much better off than they ever were, but no one's saying that they're the new Germany. Do you have a sense or an experience to explain, you know, how Germany just took off and has become, again, a global powerhouse. And these other countries, maybe because of population, maybe because of history, maybe because of culture, I'm sure all of those are part of it, just did not. And even today still have some significant problems. Yeah, I think Germany has done that fabulously well, that transition. I think what has worked very well in Germany is sort of the social democratic structure. So there was not this massive transfer, as many East Germans feared that the wealthy Germans would come in and take all the wealth and we'd end up with a load of very rich people, a load of very poor people. That did not happen in Germany. I mean, Germany has been very good at spreading the wealth in the country because of their laws, their the way the society based on consensus, you know, even the big companies like Volkswagen, you know, they have union people on the board and so on. So we didn't see this massive distribution of wealth to a small number of people that we saw in other Eastern European countries, you know, Russia being the best example of that, unfortunately, where suddenly we had this massive wealth transfer to a very small number of people. We didn't have that in Germany. And I think because Germany is well-structured, there's a good rule of law and a good political process and they were able to you know to do it fairly and Germans are very you know despite the ancient history you know what in the more recent times in the post second world war times I think Germany has been a very fair society and I remember once you know I was being a you know a sort of a child of Thatcher I remember once moaning about taxes and I was speaking to this rather successful gentleman who was very wealthy and had been a successful entrepreneur as I moaning about the taxes and everything. He says, Agent, why are you complaining about the taxes? He said, Agent, I'm happy to pay my taxes and live in a society like is the one you can see outside this window. And it was a real eye-opening moment for me. Wow, okay. We have this great society and functioning economy because of that, not despite it. I think you're speaking a foreign language to many American listeners right now, especially uh, (laughs) in our modern era of incredible 
opposite views that people have and extreme views that we've seen very, very recently as well. So I have a hypothesis that this experience in Germany and privatizing and being in the wild east, as you describe it, where there weren't actually a ton of rules. You had to create the rules. I mean, that is really an entrepreneurial environment because you didn't get slotted into a job. Here's your cubicle, just do your job. You have to create as you're going along. And some sociologists uh, use the term imprinting to describe things like this. And I like the term imprinting means that these early career or sometimes life experiences imprint into us almost like our DNA shifts Not exactly, because it can't, but a little bit, that it shifts and these experiences that are these immersive, powerful, life-forming and life-changing experiences, they stay with us and they affect how we behave and how we act and what we do. And so even, I'm going to say, with due respect to your uncle, the entrepreneur, I have a feeling that being in this milieu, this environment had to have accelerated your own entrepreneurial journey. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And I was fortunate that, you know, after leaving the Troy Hand Anstalt, I came across this opportunity, met the team through my friend Martin Mm -hmm. Newton, and we had an idea and had an opportunity. And so we were, in the case of that business, in the right place at the right time. And so I absolutely I agree with you. And and I would say even though, you know, coming back to our image of Germany as a whole, you know, we tend to think of these big companies, Siemens, BMW, which actually is a family business, <laughs> and, uh, Porsche as well was <laughs> a family business, Volkswagen. We, we tend to think about these big giants. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the foundation of the German Wirtschaftswunder and the German economy today are the immediate, small and medium-sized businesses. So I didn't realize it at the time, but I was starting a business in a country that actually was very small and medium-sized business friendly. You know, my first company, which was 3D visualization animation studio in the real estate sector when i moved later to france you know trying to get clients as a small business in france trying to get clients who are big companies it's rather difficult but in germany we would speak to very large construction companies real estate companies they were willing to talk to us even though we were a tiny company and i think the whole environment there by the way the german tourist board should be paying me something because i'm <laughs> <laughs> making a good advert for germany but yeah we found that it was a small business friendly environment so adrian from all the businesses that you have been involved with that you've created do you have you have a favorite favorite child Yeah, actually, it's not that difficult a question for me to answer. I think definitely my favorite child of all the businesses was the first one, Archimation, the very first startup in Berlin. It wasn't the most uh, successful in terms of valuation and exit and so on, but it was the one that I had the most fun with, where I Mm -hmm. had the best partner. And I don't want to criticize my other partners and the other businesses I've had, but there was just this great connection with Martin, as I explained earlier, you know, this complementarity. And we just had everything fitted together, the opportunity, the team, the idea, the product market fit. We didn't know the word disruption, at least being used in that context at the time. But, you know, we were coming in 
with 3D technology and providing a visualization service to mm-hmm. real estate developers who'd been used to working with artists who drew their future buildings. And I mean, we turned up at Tishman Speyer in Berlin, <laughs> who had this massive project on the Friedrichstrasse, and we'd look at the hole in the ground, which was just outside their office, and say, okay, we've done a few mock-ups here. This is what it could look like. And they were just amazed. I mean, this is 1993, and the first time many people were seeing computer generated generated renderings. So our value proposition was incredible. You know? And we were right. in an industry where, you know, these buildings that Tishman Speyer and others were building were costing literally billions of Deutschmarks. And, you know, what we were charging was so small that the decision process was really, really easy. So that was great. It was a time, maybe, Sydney, that I think you'd agree is important often in these professional experiences, what's going on in your personal life, it was just after starting that company, I got married. My three mm. kids were born in the four years following that. And so they're just everything had come together, life, business. I was living the dream, my first company. Um, we didn't at that time have any investors. We didn't need them. We had a cash positive business. Maybe that helped as well. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> That can't hurt. It's fun to listen to you describe it because you're describing with a lot of love, really, on that memory. And are you involved with it at all? Or are you sold it off or closed or what? It was a fairly difficult business to sell, I would say, even though it was cash positive and a really profitable little boutique business, but it was very dependent on the people. And we needed people, you know, we're using Silicon Graphics workstations at the time. So you needed to know Unix, you needed to understand 3D graphics, you needed to be able to animate. We needed people with architecture skills. And so it was hard to scale the business, hard to find the people. And then when we sold it, you know, there's a limited number of people we could really sell it to. So in the end, we did a really good deal with our employees, two of our employees, Thomas and Alex. Uh, They ended up buying the business from us. And then still going which is amazing you know over 20 years later they're actually still going it's changed a lot that particular business is very very different from when we started just because of the one of the barriers to entry was the price of the technology whereas that has come right down a lot Mm -hmm. of kids in architecture school now they learn 3d animation so the skill set is less rare let's say, but they're still out there and uh, still living in Berlin and still still using the name, which is good yeah, to see. Yeah. And I'm still friends with them, which is another thing. Well, that's good. You do the deal with them. But the fact that they're still in business, yeah, that kind of makes you feel good, I think, because you've helped them and they've run with it. I'm curious because you have, you know, there's a lot of businesses, Mr. Footage, Eventival, which is pretty big, Series Impact, probably others as well. Were you ever involved in more than one startup at the same time? Yes, and I would advise against it. You know, Sydney, in the 90s in Berlin, I had these two quite successful companies, Archimation and then PopTel. So PopTel was the most successful of the businesses I've been involved in, VC Finance and so on, and sold in a trade sale to a telecoms group. And, you know, I came out of the 90s thinking, wow, I can do anything. You know, I've started these two businesses in Berlin and, you know, I know everything. I've worked with investors and there was a little bit of arrogance, I would say. And I came back, I moved, maybe made the mistake in retrospect to move from Berlin back to France with my young family. And I thought, hey, I can do everything. 
And I think then in those early 2000s, I spread myself too thin. I got involved in a lot of different projects and most of them in that period failed. And it was because really I was not the superhero I thought I was. And also, I think I really underestimated the network we had in Berlin. You know, I'd been about nine years in Berlin and my two previous businesses were really Berlin businesses. And I thought, hey, I can just do the same thing in France. And it was a completely different kettle of fish. So answering your question, yes, I have been and I wouldn't advise it. Yeah. And it's interesting when you do shift as dramatically as you did from one country to another and the business climate, well, you tell me, but the business climate for entrepreneurship is in France. I'll tell you one anecdote. I was in, I can't remember if it was Beijing or Shanghai, for some work. And I was there on a Sunday, starting my work on a Monday. And I was just walking around. I went into a cafe, have some lunch. And it was like mid-afternoon. And a young group of people came in. They were French. I'd say five or six of them, men and women, could not have been more than 30 years old each. And I don't know, they were having some fun doing whatever they were doing. They came in and they sat next to me and I was there by myself. And so I struck up a conversation and my French is not great, but their English was very good. They're all entrepreneurs and they represented, I can't remember if there were five or there were six, but they were in three or four different businesses. They weren't all in one business and they had moved to China because that's where they saw the opportunity. And they said, it's impossible to start a new business in France. The red tape is impossible. And so this is where we want to be. And I asked them, do you think you're ever going to go back? And they said, there's no reason to go back. I think they'll change their mind as they get a little bit older, perhaps. But anyways, with that anecdote in my mind and in the back of your head, what's your experience? Because, I mean, you're teaching people and supporting people in entrepreneurship. Is there any truth to this? And has it gotten better under Macron or anything else? Definitely, it has got better. So I think when I came to France 20 years ago, it was certainly not the best place to start a business. There was a lot of things that were barriers to starting a company. In reality, it wasn't as bad as everybody made out. I think it was more also a question of the mindset of many young people in France. At that time, many people did not want to start their own businesses. You know, it was sort of well known that the most 22-year-olds back in 2005 dreamt of, you know, working for the government. You know, I don't think there's any other country in the world, maybe. Can't imagine it. It's definitely not America. I could tell you that much. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And now that has definitely changed. I mean, with Macron, we've got this this organization called Station F that is, I think, actually the world's biggest incubator accelerator, and there's a, a loads of startups there. I think one thing that's changed as well, there have been a few role models. So as often is the case as we were talking about parents before, I think the problem is France didn't have any real role models, successful mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. There's no Bill Gates. There was no Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. And by the way, these people are good examples of role models. I'm not endorsing necessarily their styles or anything, <laughs> just for the record. Having said that, I do. I am a big fan of probably all three of those gentlemen. But the thing is, I think over the last 10 years, we've seen a few people emerge, like a guy called Xavier Niel, who was the founder of Station F. So people who've been successful as entrepreneurs have shown many of the entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs in France were kind of seen as a little bit shady, a little bit dodgy. You know, they'd done something bad. A lot of them had ended up being prosecuted and so on for various things of fraud. And there was this sort of suspicion of people who'd made money. And I think that 
has changed with these role models. So it's definitely changed. It's become fairly easy to set up a company. And Sydney, I can give you an example when you look at actual the total cost of being an entrepreneur here. So when I speak to people who want to start new business, some of my students, you know, at INSEAD, and of course, they are often from a different country, so they're not necessarily mm-hmm. going to start their business in France. But they say to me, oh, Adrian, I'm never going to start my company in France. The tax is so high, you know, and it's terrible. And I'm going to pay 50% social security to the government mm-hmm. for every employee. And I say, okay, and then they tell me I'm going to move to San Francisco to start my company. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, do you know how much an engineer costs in San Francisco (laughs) and I take them through the costing and say you know your engineer in France who costs you know maybe you have to pay 60,000 your fully loaded cost of paying that person including what you're paying to the government is going to be maybe you know 100,000 120,000 euros in San Francisco you're going to be lucky if you're going to get that same person for 200,000 dollars you know before you even Mm -hmm. start talking about all the other costs so there's Mm -hmm. a a perception which when you actually logically go through the figures it's actually not that bad here and one final thing i'll say on this there's certain types of companies as well there's where there's definitely an advantage to being in france or in the eu so for instance i'm doing a project right now with my dear colleague bill mcgill who is actually an ex-vc from silicon valley and we're working with our emba students on deep tech scientific projects and looking at whether we can bring the mbas together with these innovations that have been created by SAM, the the, um, particle accelerator laboratory down in Geneva. And, you know, for projects like that, that have a very high, deep technology component, it's almost Mm -hmm. an advantage actually to be in a country like France, because there's lots of grants and incentives for doing those kind of projects. So yeah, this example you just shared is really interesting. CERN is a big European research organization that it's like people used to talk about Bell Labs back in the day where they invented, you know, the transistor and all kinds of amazing fundamental building blocks. And I think CERN is that plus maybe even more. And is it the case then, is this a new thing that they're looking to commercialize their inventions that the scientists and mathematicians are coming up with? Or is it something they've done in the past? So I don't know how much they've done in the past. I know they do have a department, which is a tech transfer department. But with them, with one of our students, our current EMBA students worked at CERN and he approached us and said, no, look, we've got all these innovations at CERN and they're not being exploited. Mm. Could we maybe do something together? And it's been sort of a few months, uh, probably almost a year in the making, but it's finally come together. And it's a fabulous win-win for everybody. The people at CERN are delighted to get their innovations possibly seeing the light of day. And of course, at INSEAD, we're delighted to be part of a collaboration with a prestigious institute like that. And the students are delighted because they might be able to, you know, get hold of some really cool technology that they can turn into very valuable businesses. So you call it deep tech. And I'm going to tell you that that is like the coolest name I've ever heard. Did you coin that or is that something that's been floating around? 
I'm trying to think who coined it. It's probably Bill, my colleague, who coined yeah. it. You know, he's been working in that space for a long time. We also, both of us have a student of ours who did his MBA about five years ago, a guy called Luca Vere, who has a company called Prophecy. And he's kind of our poster boy for deep technology. And I think we were all on a panel together last year with his VC. And I think it might have been there that the phrase was coined. But I'll give the credit to Bill on that one. Okay. Yeah. As soon as you said, I said, wow, I love that because everything is tech, 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 but this is implying something that I think, at least in my outsider perception of what CERN might be doing, quite accurate, actually. They're doing stuff no one else is, is, or I don't know about no one else, but hardly anyone else is doing. And you're kind of digging deep into their vaults of knowledge to generate new business ideas. But I mean, it's like a university. Universities are the biggest tech incubators out there, not just the Stanfords of the world and the entrepreneurship side, but the science that comes from university, the number of startups that are coming out of so many universities. I'm sure it's true in Europe. By the way, what's going on in Scandinavia? I don't know if you know the answer. Like Sweden, for example, Spotify. It seems like there's a lot of entrepreneurial activity in Scandinavia, more so than in many other parts of Europe. Do you have any, I mean, is that accurate? Do you have any sense of that or just my imagination? No, I think you're absolutely right. And actually, I'm very fortunate that someone who's become a very good friend of mine and with whom I started the company, Mr. Footage, and we're working together on this escape game for training, Johan Sundberg. He's Swedish. Through him and through various other projects, I've had quite a lot of contact with the Swedish ecosystem of startups. And I think one thing that you find, and and maybe this is something that I didn't stress also for Germany. I think both Germany and Sweden, they have very, very good education systems. So I think that's another secret, the success of Germany and certainly in Scandinavia. I mean, they are excellent education system across the board, you know, humanities, engineering and so on. And even though Sweden's another country that historically has had a reputation of being, you know, ultra socialist and, you know, not really business friendly. What I've seen and experienced there is that's not true. And as you said, you know, companies like Spotify coming out of Sweden and other new tech companies, you know, on the bleeding edge of some of the innovations that we're seeing in the consumer space. So I think also, even though I must admit, I'm not a big fan of going to Stockholm in winter, in the dead of winter. (laughs) But I think it's a very pleasant place to live and work. You know, it's just, again, because of their organization of the society, it's a very pleasant place to work. And there's a resource there of people. If you're starting a new company in Stockholm and in the other cities, you know, there's just a lot of people around who are well qualified. You can find very capable and well qualified employees. I think one final thing I'd say on Scandinavia, I mean, if you look at the way Norway has dealt with their exceptional oil wealth, there's a certain maturity and again, a willingness to, to spread across the society and also really mature about what's the future. So I think Norway is the place where the highest number of Teslas per capita exist, which is kind of ironic because they're yes, an oil rich country. But they've invested so much in alternative energy and non carbon based fuel because they're thinking, you know, this is today, we'll keep this money. And they have a massive, massive sovereign wealth fund. They're putting all the oil money in, they're not spending it all. And so they're just really, really mature and healthy 
and good approach to how do we manage our wealth and how do we make sure that it lasts for a few generations rather than not just for today. Yeah, that's really great insights. And, you know, the conversation is making me think about which countries are set up through culture, through social systems, through history to be these entrepreneurial hotbeds, because that's where economic growth comes from. And we know that even in America, with so many giant companies, that's where the growth comes from. And, you know, we think about Silicon Valley, but in life sciences around MIT and Harvard, it's enormous what's going on there. And a lot of technology out of Israel, obviously Mm -hmm. out of China. It's really quite interesting and exciting to think about because, you know, entrepreneurship can create, not can, but does create wealth for not just the entrepreneurs that are successful, but for the entire economy and for employment. And you mentioned Israel, Sydney. It's a fabulous Mm. place. And I've I've been fortunate to go a couple of times. And the last time I went, we were handheld and taken to all these startups and trying to understand you know, what makes Israel this great startup nation. And, you know, some of the things are a little bit difficult to replicate. But one of them is the way the Israeli society is set up in terms of being also comes back to this community um, spirit. And, you know, even, you know, going to the fact that the teenage at 18, you go to the army, both men and women. And in the army, you learn a lot of things that are actually very applicable to entrepreneurship. They're given tremendous autonomy and actually have to make decisions as a very young person. So you're a 19 year old, you know, kid, basically, and you have to make these kind of decisions, which is a really good training for being an entrepreneur. And so out of Israel, and no surprise that many of the successful startups coming out of Israel have some kind of military connection originally. So, you know, coming out by the side yeah. of security or something like that. So I think one of my learnings of all this looking at com- countries like Israel, Sweden, Germany, who've been successful in entrepreneurship, and of course, we can't ignore the US, which is, of course, a fabulous place to be an entrepreneur, at least produces a lot of entrepreneurship. But I think there seems to be a common theme, and I'm speaking aloud a little bit, especially mm-hmm. you know, that there's some kind of common theme around the ability to harness the community, again, maybe coming back to the team at the end of the day. So in Sweden, in Norway, which is a very consensus-based society, maybe Mm -hmm. this ability to work well together, maybe that's Mm. the secret. I don't know. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, when you talk about team, if we extend it to kind of a much higher level, we'll use the word ecosystem, which will be about people, but not just people in the startup team, but people all around you, whether they're funders, whether they're scientists, whoever they happen to be. And you see that kind of ferment and energy in these hotbeds. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about EdTech, because that's something you've been involved with, something I'm very interested in as well. Technology for education, EdTech. What are you doing there and how do you see that sector? So, Sydney, this is, uh, we probably need another hour to discuss this. Yeah. But I'll, <laughs> That's right. I, I'll spring that on you right towards the end of our chat. Oh, well. I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it short. But we're both in the education business. And I think it's a really exciting time to be in this industry or whatever you want to call it. But I think what has been, you know, awful for many people and a tough year for many business schools, the COVID-19 and the pandemic has in some ways been a catalyst also for education technology. So, Hmm. you know, I've been a big fan of alternative ways of teaching, you know, using technology, maybe even online for many years. I must admit until March 2020, 
20, I had a lot of pushback from many of my colleagues for the online education. No, we're not going to do that. That's cheap. That's dirty. That's not what we do. And of course, we've all had to learn to teach online, like it or not. So I think it's shown that it is possible. Of course, I must admit, I mean, I really dream of being back in the classroom with my participants in person. But I think the pandemic has been a catalyst for a lot of innovation in the space. Something that's, you know, independent of the pandemic, I feel that there's a lot to do still in education. I mean, if you take a snapshot, and it's probably not necessarily just in business education or in graduate education, but if you take a photo, when I look, think about my kids who only left school, you know, five, six years ago, when I look at their classroom, and if I'd taken a photo of their classroom and then looked at a photo of the classroom, you know, 60 or 70 years before, it would look pretty similar with the teacher yes, up it, at the, yes, it would. the blackboard. Yes, it would. And so I think there's still a lot to be done. And I don't just mean, you know, doing online courses and giving kids iPads to use in class. I think there's still a lot of innovating to be done around how can we more effectively use technology to help kids learn. And maybe it's not even just in the content delivery, but it's in the process of how do you actually teach? How do people learn and how can they learn more effectively? And can we use this technology as an aid? And what is the project you're doing now, the startup that you're involved with in EdTech? Okay, so there are a couple of businesses, which I'm going against what I said before, don't get involved in more than one thing at a time, but they are rather (laughs) related. So over the last few years, based on a course that I was teaching at INSEAD, which was called Your First 100 Days, where we kind of created this, and I wasn't the person to originally create it. It was the late, great Patrick Turner, who was the original creator of the course, but I brought some technology into it. It's a role play simulation dynamic course where you it's very experiential so we brought in the experiential element so over the last few years at intel i've been working on how can we make the teaching more experiential where you learn and retain more effectively and so it's kind of long story short one project i'm working on is called live case where we create we basically bring case studies to life so rather than reading about a case reading about sydney finkelstein who is a ceo of this company and this is what he did and let's discuss the case and class which is great if this method works super well um, but rather that we take the participants as protagonists in the story and they live what Sidney Finkelstein had done as a CEO. And you can also make up fictitious stories then based on real companies, but it's called they live through a story and live the learning. An extension of that is something new that I've been doing, which is a lot of fun and kind of really drawing on the talents of my friend, Johan Sundberg. He used to work in TV and film production. And also we have a young filmmaker, Andrew Green, who's drawn the team as well. We thought, could we, we, I was looking at escape games. One of my sons does a lot of these physical escape games. We thought, wow, this looks like a fun activity. Number one, how do you do an escape game during the pandemic and during COVID-19? You know, it's a very in-person experience. Could we make some kind of an escape game which would be fun and possible to do in an online environment and then 
as I got talking more to Johan, we thought, could we use this as a social learning activity for our executive programs? Initially, that's what we were thinking of, but it could be extended to MBAs or whatever level. So could we you know, address this pain point where we've got a lot of people attending courses from home, they're not actually meeting the other participants, they're also working remotely. Could we create a fun activity which they could go through, which on the one hand is a social event, but maybe also when we look at leadership courses and things like that, they could actually learn something as we go through. In the same way you have sort of the more in-person team building. So it's a combination of social team building and some kind of a learning activity. Very cool. I'd like to demo that at some point because that's really interesting. I've been a big fan of that entire concept of integrating, especially as we go back post-COVID to face-to-face There are some advantages to what we've developed through Zoom or online. Not enough advantages to say we should stay that way, but that doesn't mean that we can't integrate some of these kind of new ideas. Maybe what you're talking about would be one of them. So yeah, we probably have gone over time and that's completely my fault because I got way more questions for you and we are gonna need to wrap it up. But let me ask you my favorite last question. It's a question about advice, but it's a particular flavor in that it's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when Adrian Johnson was 21 years old, let's say, (laughs) and there he is, wherever he was, dreaming up some startup, no doubt, while he was in school, and you'd lean over to him and say, 21-year-old Adrian Johnson, if there's one thing you want to know about life, it's this. Mm -hmm. If there's something I've learned that you really will have trouble learning, there's something you don't want to do, what would be that advice you'd give to yourself as you look back at your own journey and your own career? Hmm. Funnily enough, I think that advice would be patient. Be patient. I think in some parts of my career, I've just been too impatient and either given up something too quickly or not spent enough time going deeper on a couple of things that would have, you know, I was in a big hurry to go and get my MBA. I think maybe in retrospect, another year or two as an engineer working in that organization I was working for at the time would have been good. So, yeah, patience be patient. And also remember that opportunity is always going to be around the corner. You're not necessarily missing out. If you miss that opportunity, don't despair. Something else is going to come up. There's always going to be a new. And of course, there's going to be this guy that you probably want to go and work for. He's going to start a company called PayPal, you know, and he's then going to start (laughs) a space company. (laughs) Go and meet him. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that set of advice. And, you know, your first point about patience, it's very interesting because I asked this question or version of this question to almost everyone that's on the podcast. And they come from, as you know, many different walks of life. And I would say one of the themes is the point you're mentioning also. Not always stated exactly the same way, but basically boils down to, I was in such a hurry. I missed out on, and sometimes they talk about it socially and personally. Sometimes it's in terms of building your skills. And I see that with young people. I don't know if I see it as much with MBA students because they've worked you know, for six, eight years or whatever it is, but undergraduate students who are 20, 21, 22, and they graduate, they're in such a hurry to move forward and do all these great things. And yeah, I like the aspirations, but sometimes, you know, there's a Zen benefit uh, to living and experiencing and being. And I'm an older guy now. I'm not going to say old. So I couch that to say older (laughs) because hopefully there's a long runway still in front of me. But you gain some wisdom over time. 
And part of my wisdom is that old expression about it being the journey that's really about the journey that we all sloughed off and said, yeah, sure, sure. It's actually more true than anything else will ever be true yeah. when you think about yeah. that yeah, that's path absolutely. that we're on. But sometimes you just don't know it until you look back and say, there's a reason why everybody says that. <laughs> it's not just a throwaway line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing, Sydney, if I could just add at the end, you know, one thing, just, and it's been really cathartic actually just speaking to you and think it's a long time <laughs> since I've spoken about my time in Berlin and Dresden in the early days. You know, one thing you realize again, and you know, I'm an older guy now, um, as I look back, you know, I really regret, and just one of your questions, you know, what was it like speaking to those people in East Germany? I really regret why didn't i speak to more people in dresden mm. then who were 60 you know go and speak to these people who'd lived through the war who'd lived through communism and i did have the opportunity fortunately with some of the younger people i did do that but i really regret so my advice would be maybe you know look at the people around you and that could be your family and friends and you know your older relatives there's so much knowledge and experience out there you know just maybe speaking to myself now, maybe just take, you know, half an hour every week to go and talk to someone who you haven't really had a conversation with and find out who they are, find out what their experience is and learn something. Yeah, that's a great way to wrap up, Adrian. That's an actionable to-do that anyone listening can take on. I couldn't agree more. It's about the being, it's about the feeling, it's about, this is Zen-like to be sure, but about the existence. And it's not always about the end game. It's not always about accomplishing a particular task. Most of my listeners are pretty good at accomplishing tasks and are pretty successful in whatever their walk of life is, or certainly intend to for the younger listeners. But experiencing what you're going through, knowing that you're going through it, and living in the moment, all of which are kind of cliches, that's where the action is. Adrian, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me and sharing your insights, your story, your journey with our listeners on the SIDCast. And I look forward to uh, staying in touch. And I can't wait until I can start to travel back to my favorite places in the world, which do include France in the short list. So thank you again for being on the SIDCast. Thank you very much, Sydney. And you're most welcome to come and stay and visit here in Fontainebleau. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. <laughs>